in a service like this, who's going to preach before and who's going to preach after. And he knows the spirit of the service, and um, it's never been my dream to preach after Brian McBride. But the Lord knows, the Lord knows how to quiet our hearts. He knows what he placed upon my heart as well. I've learned to just stay in my lane and just do what God asked me to do. Amen. You know, he was in Genesis chapter 2 and I was thinking while he was preaching there. And I was talking to a, a preacher several weeks ago about this. When you think about the world, everybody doesn't think like we think in the Western world, the American way. And there's different world views and people view life and responsibility differently. You and I, Western world, we think guilt, innocence. Guilt, innocence. That's how we're fashioned. If I see a policeman, I automatically put on the brakes because law, legalities, legal law. Far East, they don't think that way. They're fear, power. Fear, power. They, um, they fear the unknown. That's why they worship wood and stones and, and they're trying to appease the unknown. There's a fear there, that power they're, they're afraid of. You, you go to the Middle East, uh, the Arab world, they, they don't think that way. They're more um, shame, honor. Uh, they, they think in terms of respect and disrespect and shame. That's where you get honor killings from. Well, all of that comes from Genesis chapter 2. Because Adam and Eve, when they, when they ate of that tree, that's guilt. They knew that they had broken the law of God. There's guilt there. And then, and then they went and the Bible says that they were naked. Three times it says they were naked and they knew it. So now there's shame. That's where it comes from. And they went and hid themselves. Fear. They were afraid of God. And what the Western world that operates on guilt and innocence, what that Western world needs is really the answer is Jesus Christ. Amen. Because he's the one that took my guilt for me yeah, so that I can be declared righteous before God. Amen. And what the Far East world did that deals with fear and power, what they need is, is they need Jesus Christ because he came into his own, his own received not, but his many received and to them gave he power to become the sons of God. What that Arab world needs that operates on shame and honor is they need Jesus Christ because he took all of my shame. And that's the only way that man gets his glory back is through Christ. He's the answer to all of man's problems. I'm glad that he passed by my way one day. I'm thankful for the day of September the 27th, 1976, back bedroom of a little white country frame house on Muskogee Road in Cantonment, Florida. It came by my way. Several weeks ago, I was looking through some old boxes of old notes and papers that I've kept for years and years and years. And there was a shoebox of old sermon notes that I wrote when I was a kid preacher, teenager, and 30, 40 years ago and, and just, I don't know why I've kept them because they're so pitiful but I've kept them just to see you know, hopefully progress down the road and there was one little paper, there was a little 
one white sheet of paper and it was on front and back and I, I'd forgotten it. I hadn't preached it in 30 years. But there was a little interesting study on the places where Jesus went only one time in the Gospels. There's a lot of places that he went a lot of times, Bethsaida and Capernaum. But there are five places, according to the gospel record, that Jesus went only one time. He mentioned it this morning, John 4, when he came into Samaria to Sychar. He must needs go through Samaria. That is the only time in the gospels where you find Jesus at Sychar and that well and that woman. And, and, and he went there and that is the only person that he ministered to at Sychar. It's almost as if he went there just for her. He had a ministry to a divorced Samaritan. And then in Mark chapter 5 where he crosses over the Sea of Galilee, calms the storm, crosses the Sea of Galilee and comes into the coast of Gadara. And there's a maniac. And that maniac, ain't nobody deal with that maniac, but Jesus would. And if you read it, that's the only person that he ministered with while he was there. And it's almost as if he crossed the sea and went there just to deal with a demon-possessed Satanist. And he just dealt with her. And then the Bible talks about how that he went to this little village called Nain. And there was a widow, meaning she buried her husband. And now she's on the way out and she's burying her son, her son, and it's his only son. And Jesus is coming to the other. It's the meeting of the only two sons. One was dead, but he was getting ready to live. One was alive, but he was getting ready to die. His ministry to a dead son. And it's the only person he ministered to while he was there. It's almost as if he went there just for her. The Bible talks about when he comes into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And there's a woman that comes to him. And so I'll pray for my daughter. She's demon-possessed, a distraught Syrophoenician. And Jesus talks to her and go that way, great faith. And it's the only person that he ministered to while he was It's the only time he ever went there. And it's the only person that he ever ministered to. And it's almost as if he went there just for her. And then the Bible says that he came to a place called Calvary. He had never been there before. He ain't never going to go back there. He was just there just one time. That's the only time he ever went there. And I know that he ministered to a lot of people, but I'd like to think that if I was the only one that would have got saved, I'd like to think that he had gone there just for me. I'm glad he passed by my way. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to find Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter number 2 is the only passage that I have on my heart this, this afternoon. And so I'm just going to try to obey the Lord and trust the Lord to try to help us for a little bit. But Philippians chapter number two and verse number one, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful passage to read and to memorize. And the verses that I've read to you, they look so good on a wall plaque. And it's interesting how we appreciate some verses for the beauty of the language and the richness of the doctrine, but not so much something that I would want to internalize in my life. Because these verses look good on paper. But if you want me to actually live what I've just read, then maybe not so. And the essence of this passage and passages like it really is death to self. It has been a theme in my own personal life for the last little bit. And I, I believe that it is the crux of the Christian life. It's not I, but Christ. The Christ life is the crucified life. And this passage spells that out probably more than any other passage that I know. And if I were to try to summarize the verses that I've read to you in one word, the word that I would use would be the word submission. Now most people look at verse number two where it talks about being like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. And we would say that the theme there is unity. And that verse certainly is about unity, but unity is not possible without the rest of the passage. When he says in verse number five, let this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the mind that Christ would be demonstrated in having in these verses is not the mind of unity, it is the mind of submission to his Father. He says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things. Look every man also on the things of others. There's more there than just getting along with each other. There is meekness and there is submissiveness and there is service and there is humility and they are all graces that promote unity but the theme is more than just unity. It is submission that is the opposite of selfishness and self-defense and the opposite of self-interest. And it doesn't seem like a good subject for Jubilee and it's going to be hard to, to, to really get encouraged by Philippians chapter 2. But I, 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 I believe that, that we could do with a lot more of the submissive spirit in our lives. Amen. Too many times we are full of bluster and bravado and braggadocia. Wait till I get back to the room and post on Twitter how great a message that I preached and if you criticize me, then you watch how sharp I can cut you back down. And really what we need is less of self and less of the flesh and more of Jesus. And this passage will tell us how. If you'll notice with me in verse 1 through 4, there is the description of submission. I'll not read the verses again, but it's such a high ideal it is so antithetical to culture and humanity that we read it, but if you think about it, we almost cannot grasp it. We hear it, we acknowledge it, but how do you live on such a high plane? It is radical living. It is for now. It was certainly in Paul's day. He is in Philippi. Philippi was the center of Greek culture, and Greek people were very proud people because they were so cultured, they were so advanced. They had the philosopher Socrates, and Plato and Aristotle and they had great sculpture and they had architecture and they were experts in science and mathematics and medicine and astronomy. 
And the Greeks were a great people. They had every reason to be proud of themselves. So through this radical thinking to tell them, advanced people, that you need to humble yourself and prefer others above yourself. And, and, and when Paul tells us why we should have the Spirit about us, he, he tells us first um, what God has done for us. If you and I are going to resist serving ourselves and exalting ourselves, and if we're going to serve one another, if we're going to have any humility and submission about us, then there has to be a compelling motive. And you're not going to enter into these, these verses out of the goodness of your heart or because you're such a mild and meek personality. There has to be something super natural created in us that enables us to live outwardly this which God has for us. So he says in verse number one, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any bowels and mercies. When he says if there be, he's not questioning if there is. He's saying if these things be and they are. And since these things are a reality to you, then this is how that you should live. And commentators go to great lengths to try to point out the difference between the four statements. They, they sound real similar to me. But basically what it's saying is this is how Christ has treated you. The loving, tender kindness of the Lord in my life should soften my hard heart and give me a desire to demonstrate that same attitude to my brother. If you're going to live in verse number two, then verse number one has to be a reality in your life. He says in verse number two, again, four statements, like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. We don't necessarily have to have the same hobbies or the same interests and we don't have, have to think the same thing. We certainly don't have to think the same way. But you somehow have got to get to where you think of other people first. But we have so much humanism that is embedded into us that we know very little of what it is to give ourselves to one another. And then where it really gets difficult is in verse number three. And I want you just to treat, see if you can think about the words, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's getting it right down to the living level. And it's not telling you to be a doormat for everybody to walk on, but you do become a servant to others. And again, we read the verses and we nod in agreement and we come to the altar and say, Lord, this is for me and I'm going to go and I'm going to be a Philippians chapter 2 man and I'm going to be meek and submissive and going home tonight, somebody's going to cut you off in traffic. And you're going to a restaurant and the waitress is not going to get the order right. And you're going to call customer service and you're going to be on hold for 30 minutes and then they are going to hang up on you. And your wife is going to push your buttons. And your kids are going to get on your nerves. And your precious plans that you think should be inscribed on stone tablets with the Ten Commandments are going to get derailed. And the horrible inconvenience that you have of living with such rubes and fools. That's not a whole lot better in the church. Did you know that you'll never have a church split if you live in verse 3 and 4? You'll never get offended at the preacher and the preacher will never get weary of you if you live in verse 3 and 4. You'll never get upset that you didn't get asked to sing the special or you didn't get picked to preach the junior high class if you're living in verse 3 and 4. Right, right. 
have been independent Baptist all of my life and I love the movement and I would never be anything else. And this is family. And when you're family, family can talk about each other to each other, but you don't want anybody outside the family to talk about us. Right? In, in our movement, we have a lot of issues. But I really believe that our movement could use a little bit more humility and a little bit more meekness and a little bit more submissiveness. I really think that we need less great preachers and more broken preachers. We have the fighting part of fundamentalism down real good, but we need to work on, like Brother Jones preached, the loving sinners part. We really need to work on that part. And I gotta, I gotta be honest with you, I've done a lot of preaching in vainglory. And I've often thought that I was better than my brother. And I'm really keen on taking care of me, but that's not my Lord. I really believe that if my Lord was slandered on Twitter, he wouldn't fire a hot tweet back. I really believe that if my Lord were falsely accused, he wouldn't go to war against the accuser. There's a description of submission. But then I want you to notice in the text that there is a demonstration of submission. Because the verses that I read to you are heavy verses. And we can talk about it all afternoon until time to eat. But, but, but how, do you, how do you do this? In verse number five, he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now you know the verses after this, Paul is going to pivot. He's going to start talking about Christ. Great passage on the, on the humiliation and the exaltation in Christ. And so you may wonder, how do these passages, what, what, what's, what's the thing that ties them together? He's talking about strife and vainglory and, and all of this. And then he starts in talking about Christ. And really the verse that ties it together is verse number five. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. After he tells us what our mind ought to be in verse 1 through 4 he then points to Christ as the example of what he has just said. When he says let this mind be in you what mind? Verse 2, verse 3 verse 4. Which was also in Christ Jesus. How? Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. Christ is the one who did nothing in strife or vain glory. Christ is the one who exhibited lowliness of mind. Christ is the one who esteemed himself better than, uh, esteemed others better than himself. Christ is the one who didn't look on his own things but on the things of others. So you cannot separate the two passages. See, see here's what you have to watch. When, when Paul speaks of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ in this passage, he, he, he speaks about it not in terms of what it means to us. Now we know that when Christ died, that that's our substitution, that that is our ransom. That's how we got saved. But when he speaks of it here, he speaks of his humiliation in terms of what it meant to him. He doesn't say anything about the salvation that we obtain. He doesn't say anything about the blood saving us. Nothing about the forgiveness of sins because we know those things are true. But he's not presenting it here in terms of our salvation. He's presenting it here in terms of our example. How, how he submitted himself is how we ought to submit ourselves. It doesn't mean that we are called to die like he did, but we can have the same attitude, the same mind, the same submission, the same obedience that he had. But then if you'll skip down to verse number 19, Paul leaves that subject, starts talking about himself, and he mentions two men. There is Timothy, and then in verse 25, there's Epaphroditus. 
And so the rest of this chapter is a personal word to the church at Philippi. He talks about being sick and Epaphroditus coming to see him and Timothy being a help. So, so how do you put it together? Here's, here's what he does in this chapter. He talks about having this mind, this submissiveness, this humility. Let this mind be in you, which is Christ. But I'm going to tell you something. It is too big of an ideal. So here's what he does in the chapter. He gives you three demonstrations. He names three men by name in the chapter. And all three of these men, they demonstrate in what he's trying to tell us to do. In verse 2, 3, and 4, there's three examples. Watch this. Here's the first example. That's Jesus Christ. Nobody ever exemplified submission and humility more than him. Let this mind be in you. Oh, if I could go through the day and just think like Jesus thinks. The mind of Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of God. I, I, I. And too many times, that's me. But the mind of Christ is not my will, but thy will be done. Step through the verses, step through the verses. In verse number six, here's what you have. You have the son who was the sovereign, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, form of God, the outward appearance that reflects the inward nature. It is a word that refers to, to essence or, or his essential being. And it's simply saying that he possesses the very being and the very nature of God. In verse number seven, where it says that he took upon him the form of a servant. He didn't just look like a servant. He was a servant. So in verse number six, he didn't just look like God. He was God. He is God. Took upon himself who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. To rob is to take something that doesn't rightly belong to you. And in John 5 and verse 18 the Pharisees got mad at him because he said that God was his father making himself equal with God. And when he claimed, when he claimed to be one with the father, he's not claiming something that doesn't rightly belong to him. The son was the sovereign. But then in verse number 7, the sovereign became a servant, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. When he came, he came with no demands of the Father. He could have said, let the whole world die and go to hell, but I'm not putting my deity in dispute. But he didn't refuse to be poor, and he doesn't refuse to beggar himself, and he doesn't refuse to become flesh. The poet Milton said, he forsook the courts of everlasting day and chose with us a house of mortal clay. And he could have said that, that, that I'll go, but I insist that I retain my equality and I, I won't compromise on that. No, he made himself of no reputation. And he could have said that I'll go, but I insist that it be like Sinai with thunder and lightning and earthquake. And I insist that it be like Isaiah, that the train of my glory filling the temple and cherubim hiding their eyes from me. I'll go on those terms. No, he made himself of no reputation. He could have said, I'll go, but I want it to be like the Mount of Transfiguration where men see my face glowing as the noonday sun. And I'll go, but I want them to see me coming in clouds of glory, holy angels attending to me, every eye beholding me, every knee bowing to me. No, he made himself of no reputation. He came into the darkness. He pitched his tent where blasphemers lived. He came to be blasphemed by his brethren and tempted by the devil. And he came in no beauty or glory. And he became a man who was despised and rejected. It says that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. If 
He does not demand to retain his full glory as the second person of the Godhead. Then how would he come? If you're not coming as almighty God, then what role will you play? Perhaps he could come as the emperor of a large kingdom with a vast army in an entourage. Or perhaps he could come as a silver-tongued orator who would command masses with just his words. Or, or maybe he comes as an as a iron-fisted dictator that rules men just as a brutal dictator. No, he took upon him the form of a servant. As much a servant on earth as God in heaven. He didn't just play God, he was God. He didn't just play servant, he was a servant. No, no possessions and no privileges, no advantages to his vast resume. He now adds servant and was made in the likeness of men. He possessed all the attributes of deity, but now he will possess the attributes of humanity. His manhood is not just a phantom manhood. He did not come in the appearance of humanity. It's not just a temporary role. He played like a theophany in the Old Testament. Nothing that was human was alien to him. All that was human was found in him. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Held the incarnate deity. The son who was the sovereign. The sovereign who became a servant. But then in verse 8, the servant who became the sacrifice. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And watch this word, even, even. There is a limit to how far man will go. You can push him so, so far, but eventually he's going to reach a breaking point. He's going to say, that's enough. He may go the second and the third mile, but he's going to say, I've gone far. I've, I've done it. I'm not taking any more. Oh, but look how far Jesus went. You would think that surely somewhere in the denial of his brethren, the blasphemy of the Jewish elders, the accusing him by the power of Beelzebub, the lying about his attentions, the mockings of his claim, that somewhere in all of that he would say, that's enough, no more. You would think that surely somewhere in the agony of Gethsemane and the betrayal by Judas and the abandonment by his disciples and the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, somewhere in all of that he would say, no more, that's enough, I've gone far enough. You would think that surely somewhere in the cries of crucify him, in the humiliation of standing before Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, in the accusation of treason and the scourging at the hand of the soldiers of the crown of thorns and the mock reed and the spittle and the plucking of the beard, somewhere along the way he would say, no more. No, he became obedient unto death, even, 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 even that death. Excruciating, embarrassing, degrading, humiliating, painful, cruel. Death is reserved for the very worst of criminals. You see that man on the cross, that is the God of the universe. I would have done it that way. If I would have sent him, I would have sent him to a palace born in the wealth and prestige. I would have made sure that the world loved him and revered him. I would have imprisoned anybody that would slander him. I would execute anybody that would touch him. But this is how God saves sinners. This is what God thinks about me. That the sovereign would become a servant and the servant would become a sacrifice. But then in verse 9, 10, and 11, the sacrifice becomes the sovereign again. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I want you to remember the point of the passage. 
It is telling you what humiliation looks like. It's giving you an example of what Paul just told us to do. This is the model. And by the way, humility and lowliness is not the end game. It wasn't for Christ and it's not for us. Humility is the gateway to exaltation. Whoever humbles himself, God will exalt. In God's economy, you get by giving. You live by dying to self. You find your life by losing it. You are exalted by humbling yourself. And verse 6, 7, and 8 is telling you what humility, what submission looks like. And verse 9, 10, and 11 is telling you what exaltation looks like. This is how a man should humble himself. And this is how God will reward him with exaltation. Now, God's not going to exalt you in the same way that he exalts Christ. You're not getting a name above every name. And nobody's going to bow their knee to you. But you don't humble yourself the way that Christ did as well. You don't lay aside deity and die on a cross. This is the power. Just as Christ humbled himself, so you and I should humble ourselves. And just as God exalted him, then God will exalt you and I. Now, now can you see see that little survey of those verses that that tells you that Christ is the example? Verse 1 through 4. Can you see how that Christ exemplified the loneliness of mind? How that Christ esteemed others better than himself? Can you see the humility, the servanthood, the submission. This is what it looks like. But then Paul is going to give you another example. Look at verse number 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you. Now he's getting ready to write a personal note just to the church at Philippi. And he's commending Timothy to them because he's going to send them, send Timothy to them. And Timothy would have been with Paul the first time that he came to Philippi in Acts 16. So they would know who he was. However, Timothy at that time was a young preacher boy. He had just joined the evangelistic team. So when they thought of Timothy, they thought of him as that green, young, inexperienced kid preacher. But Paul's commending him. Timothy has become Paul's closest companion. He mentions him 24 times in the epistles. And he says in verse 20 that he's my servant. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Timothy has a servant's heart. He has a concern for other people and their needs. He has a mind to serve others. In verse number 22, he says he's my son. You know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. In another place, he'll mention Timothy as his Dearly beloved son, he was Timothy's mentor. He's taken him under his wing as a father would a son. In verse 23, he's his substitute. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Paul is in prison in Rome. He wants to send somebody back to Philippi as his ambassador to see how they're doing. And he couldn't go himself and he wanted to send somebody in his stead. And in verse number 20, he says, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. There were a number of believers in the church at Rome because in Romans 16, he names 26 of them by name. But all of them are busy. None of them have time. None of them can go. He wants to send somebody. And so the only person that he's got to send is Timothy or And in that personal little note to Philippi about Timothy and that commendation, can you see how that Timothy is an example of verse 1 through 4? He has a servant's heart. He puts Paul's needs over his own. He's not trying to compete with Paul. He's not trying to make a name for himself. Here is a man who is content to live in the shadows. 
He took a back seat to the great apostles. He never wrote an epistle. He, but, but what a Christ-like man. And can I say that every church needs a man like that? Amen. Preacher, what do you need done? Somebody, somebody who, who is okay with being in the shadows. Somebody who is so busy wearing so many hats right now, but I've, I can wear just one more. I can do another job. I can do another responsibility. By the way, every home needs a man like that. A man who sees his wife as a queen, but doesn't see himself as the king. A man who doesn't blow up and act the fool when his kids irritate him or treats his wife like a footstool. That's Timothy. There's a third example. I've heard there's Epaphroditus. He's found in verse 25. Epaphroditus was a believer in the church of Philippi. He's the guy that came from Philippi to Rome, brought him that offering. And he's the guy that's going to deliver the letter back to Philippi. He's also going to deliver Ephesians and Colossians. Yes. He's a balanced believer. Look at verse 25. Yet, I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier. But your message, well, that's a lot for one man. And Paul could have probably kept going. This is a man that would work beside you or fight for you, whatever was needed in the moment. Yes. No matter what you needed done, he was available. If he didn't have the experience, he would do his very best. He would come early and he would stay late. And if you need me to preach or clean the toilet, it's really all the same to me. Yeah. It's a balanced believer. He's a burden believer. Look at verse 26. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness. Watch this. Because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He had gotten sick when he got to Rome. He's deathly sick, and it bothered him not that he was sick, but they had heard that he was sick. That's what it says. Look at it. Indeed, he was sick. He longed after you all, was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. You don't have to announce every tummy ache on Facebook. Every ingrown toenail is not a prayer request. There are some of you that will get sick and you will die before you tell anybody. And some of you hope that you get sick so you can announce it on Twitter. He's a burdened believer. He's a blessed believer. Verse 28, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore the Lord with all gladness holds such a reputation because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. His word, me, his name means charming. What a charming Christian that he was. He was a blessing to everybody that came in contact with him. And what a tragedy to go through life and not be a blessing to others. Yes. So here's the text. Paul says, here's the mind. Here's the attitude that we really need to live with. And it's so high. Let me show you an example. Here's Christ. And here's Timothy. There's Epaphroditus. You see, I read these verses, Brother Reigns, and I, I, I'm not sure I know the difference between comfort in Christ and consolation in Christ. But if you show me a picture, That's right. I, I, I can do that. I can follow the example set before me. There's a description of submission. There's a demonstration of scripture of submission. I'm done. There are the dynamics of submission. Because for just a moment, I want to just set it in our laps. I want to get up real close to it. 
What does it look like? How will I know when in my life I have the mind of Christ? The grace, the meekness, the humility, the submission. I was preaching this Sunday from 1 Peter chapter 2. I was preaching that last passage where it talks about bore our sins in the flesh and the body and, and the example and following its steps. And that next verse says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. No violence, but he didn't even commit sin with his mouth. The words of Christ on the cross, full of grace, full of compassion, full of forgiveness. He didn't curse them, he prayed for them. We probably sin with our mouth more than anything. He didn't even do that. Yep. Never said anything that he wished he could take back. Never spoke a word out of character. That next verse is really hard for me. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Right. When he suffered, he threatened not. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not very good at that. No. I'm really not. Because I have a lot to say when I'm reviled. I can, think of all, I can think of a whole lot of things to say, babe. I want to give it right back to you and give you the I don't always, but I have. But he never did. Apostle Paul was, just give this too quick. The Apostle Paul was standing before that council in Acts 23. Remember that? And Ananias, the high priest, said to that guy next to him, said, smite him. And Paul said, God smite you, you whited wall. And the people standing around said, revilest thou the high priest? Paul said, I didn't know that was a high priest. I wouldn't have said that against a high priest. And I'll be honest with you, a whole lot of times I'm more like Paul than I am Jesus. Paul wanted to backtrack. I got a few things I'd like to say. But I read these verses and I fall short so many times. But how will you know three things I've done? When you are willing to be sent anywhere. Of all of the places that Christ could have came to, he came here. A planet that is nothing but a speck of dust to the universe. A billion planets that he could have come to, but he came here. Of all of the preachers that he could have, creatures he could have chose to save, he chose to save us. Paul, Paul informs Timothy that I need you to go to Philippi. Never mind, it is 500 miles away. And Timothy never argued and he never protested. He's willing to go wherever Paul needed him. Epaphroditus is sick unto death, but Paul needs him to take this letter back to the church at Philippi and the church that sent him to Paul. And now Paul is going to send him back to the church and a submissive spirit is revealed in the idea that I will go wherever I am needed. I believe the closest embodiment that we have to that in the church today are missionaries. A missionary goes where not many people want to go. And he goes there because he's needed there. So he goes to the island and he goes to the jungle and he goes to strange cultures and he goes to foreign lands and he goes to the Buddhists and he goes to the Muslims and he goes to the Catholics. And when a missionary comes by, he ought to be highly honored because here is a man who said that I'll go anywhere and here's a wife that said that I will follow you and here are children whose lives are being uprooted and God may never call you, but can you say, I am willing to go? And even when you say, I'm willing to be sent anywhere, when you're able to say that thing, you can say you have the mind of Christ. Young preacher, don't ever let there be a place of service too small for you. Don't think that you're ever too good of a preacher to preach in the nursing home or the jail. 
Lord, where do you need me? The where does not matter. I'm willing to go. When you're willing to be seen anywhere, when you are willing to serve anyone. Christ came to be ministered to, not to be ministered to, but to ministry. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Timothy's not jockeying for a leadership position. He's not trying to get his name on the building. He's not trying to replace the apostle. He's just a servant. That's all that he is. Amen. Paul said Epaphroditus ministered to my wants. Epaphroditus is the kind of man you've got to be careful mentioning that you want something because you can go out and get it. He didn't just meet Paul's needs. He met Paul's wants. Whatever you need, I'll do it. When you're willing to be sent anywhere, when you're willing to serve anyone, when you're willing... To sacrifice anything. Christ became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The sacrifice is not too great. And Paul said that Timothy counted not his life dear unto himself. It sounds like Paul's a little bit frustrated. He said, all seek their own. But thank God for one man who regarded not his own life. Epaphroditus regarded not his life. By the way, chapter 1 and verse 21, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. You will either live in chapter 1 and verse 21 or you will live in chapter 2 and verse 21. All seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. So I began this afternoon with verses 1 through 4 and I read these verses and I say this is radical living. I know that it is right, I know that it is expected of me, but it's really hard on the flesh. The Christ life always is. But I will tell you that these verses will help you in your anger. They will help you in your hatefulness. It will help you in your harshness. Those verses will help your marriage. Those verses will help you in the church. Those verses will help you in every relationship. And I wonder if you'd say, I need more of that spirit in my life. And Paul says, let me show you three men who lived it. It begins with the transforming power of Christ in you. We talk about the change that salvation brings and usually we're talking about smoking and drinking and carousing and cursing. But I want you to know that the Holy Spirit will work an inward change as well. That he is able to calm that temper. And he can squash that angry spirit. And he can cleanse that bitter, envious, clamoring soul. I say to young men, to young preachers, oftentimes you want to preach for the glory of men and to prove yourself a good preacher and maybe get noticed. But be done with that self-serving mentality. Go to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and die to your selfish ambitions. Master the role of a servant. Learn humility. Be quiet in your spirit. Learn to be criticized without getting upset, to be ridiculed without caring, to be overlooked without being offended. Say, I need the conforming influence of the Holy Spirit to mold in me the character of Christ. And if I'm going to be Christ-like, here's the picture. This is the model. In a meeting like this, we hear a lot of preaching. We come to the altar 20 times and we cry a lot. But I wonder if you would come this this afternoon and say, Lord, I need you to make me into this kind of a Christian. I'm going to be honest with you. We don't need more of you on Twitter arguing with fools and beating your chest. We desperately need in our churches, we need more humility and we need more brokenness and we need more submission. And if the world, the world doesn't need to see me. The world needs to see Jesus. But how are they going to do that when I'm so full of flesh and carnality and self-interest and self-defense? And I need more grace and I need more brokenness and I need more meekness. I need more mercy. 
and I need it with my church, and I need it with my wife. Yeah. I need it with people that don't like me. Yes. So, Father, make me like Jesus. Take me, break me, mold me, and make me. May I have the mind of Christ. And when I slip and go back to the old way, may my redemption be deep, repentance be deep. May my shame be so pronounced and may I so quick to fall on my face and say, God, I've messed up again. Can I be honest with you? I get more help for me when I fall flat on my face than when I preach a great sermon. It helps me more when people avoid me after I've preached out of pity than when they want me to sign their Bible. It doesn't help me to sign Bibles because I'm too easy to get over in that vain glory side. And what my wife needs is she needs a spirit-filled, Christ-like husband. And what my church desperately needs is not a great preacher. They need a spirit-filled, Christ-like pastor. What my grandchildren desperately need is they need Poppy to be filled with the Spirit of God and the mind of Christ. So, Father, make me a vessel of mercy. Make me a vessel that's true. Fill me with love and compassion and fashion my heart to be a vessel that's worthy of you. Oh, help me to be done with vainglory and selfish ambitions and self-esteem. But may I have the mind of Christ. May I be filled with your spirit. May I have a heart of compassion and mercy and grace. 